it's really great to get people into mushrooms because one of the things that we focus on is the wow factor. You know, I have a lot of people say that they'll never look at the forest the same way again, you know, that they really realize that everything is connected through it. Welcome to Applied Mycology. I'm your host, Leaf, here with your other host, Craig. Greetings. And that was today's guest, John Michelotti. John is the founder of Catskill Fungi, which leads mushroom walks and provides mushroom education. John is a good friend of mine. We taught together and worked together in the past and is also a purveyor of fine medicinal mushroom extracts. I work with a lot of the mushrooms that people have probably heard of. Uh, reishi, lion's mane, chaga, maitake, turkey tail are some of the main ones. Dabbling in cordyceps and a few others on the side, uh, but haven't really released them commercially. But I think probably the breadth of knowledge that I may have that other people can't really find in books is just from selling them at farmer's markets and seeing people again and again, week after week, and seeing kind of what feedback I get from making these extracts in my community. In addition to medicinal mushrooms, John has a keen interest in what fungi are doing in the soil and has been learning about this through the techniques of natural farming. My mind was blown when I learned about uh, natural farming. It's all about harnessing indigenous microorganisms and introducing those into your soil and growing them up using super low-tech methods. In every teaspoon of soil, there being you know 10 to the 13th amount of microorganisms. And just to put that into perspective, there's like 10 to the 11th stars in our galaxy. So it's just incredible the amount of life that's going on under our feet. John was also the president of the Mid-Hudson Mycological Society. She said, we think you'd make a good president. And I didn't have really any experience with that. And I said, you know, okay, well, what, what do I have to do? And she said, you'll be fine. It was because of a lot of the people that have been members and held offices in that club that I was able to really gain a lot of knowledge. Really, we're just trying to welcome in as all the different types of mycology and later on in the discussion, John shared some advice for people who are looking to start up mushroom businesses of their own. Take your time. I spent a lot of time before I made the jump into doing this full-time uh, exploring and crunching the numbers. And it's boring and it's not sexy, but if you really can understand what the community need is and what you can offer, that's really a good place to start. I always recommend people learn from people smarter than them. I mean, that's how we do it, right? I mean, we learn from people that, you know, have done this before. As a full-time mushroom person, I spend a good amount of time doing things that don't look like mushroom things. And it's because it's what it takes to keep it alive. All right. Now let's get into the conversation on applied mycology. John, thanks for joining us today. John's thanks so from, much for having me. Yeah, definitely. So John's from Catskill Fungi, uh, mycologist, medicine maker, and um, you know, mycoeducator and all-around fun guy, but I'm so had to make that fun. But but John, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. We're stoked to have you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for putting this together. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, we're excited to see where this conversation goes. Here with John Michelotti, the founder of Catskill Fungi. And to start out, John, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Catskill Fungi, how it started and what it's become today? Sure. 
So Catskill Fungi started really out of need from the community and need for myself because I, I knew I wanted to devote my life to fungi and mushrooms. And I was just looking for ways in which I could do that. Uh, I was living up in the Catskills in New York, upstate New York, which is about two hours north of New York City, but a world away. I mean, it's just streams and mountains and hills. And I realized just waiting for my friend at High Falls Food Co-op that, you know, these local stores had local plant tinctures and then they had mushroom tinctures coming from the other side of the country. And this was about six years ago. And so I asked them if they wanted a local source of mushroom extracts and they got really excited. I had been making them for a number of years. And so I delved deep into the scientific research of it and started creating my own mushroom extracts commercially. And then similarly, around the same time, I was going on a lot of plant walks and herbal walks and the herbalist just kept sending the mushroom questions my way. And, and people started asking me if I wanted to lead mushroom walks. And so it was really out of this need of the community that's driven the birth of Catskill fungi and still drives it today. You know, what questions can we answer for the public? What's the public want and need? And so that was really kind of the growth of it. And then since then, it's grown in a lot of different directions, but mostly focused on um, medicinal mushroom extracts and education. Is there a mushroom cultivation component? Are you growing the mushrooms you're making the extracts with, or are they being foraged? A lot of our mushroom extracts are made from mushrooms we're foraging in the Catskills, and we are doing low-tech cultivation as far as mostly outdoor cultivation on logs, and we're doing some indoor cultivation on blocks for lion's mane. Yeah, demand raised so high that you know you can only focus on so much at a time, and so presently are sourcing those mushrooms from local mushroom farms here in the Catskills and Hudson Valley. That's interesting. So it sounds like your business is somewhat of a node for mycological information and interests. Yes, that's what we aim to do is inspire people through fungi. And we hope to be a springboard for people that are interested to get connected and involved in the mycological web, both socially and physically. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. So you do the extracts, a little bit of cultivation, and and you do these mushroom walks too. And are you doing more education beyond the mushroom walks? Uh, yeah, we do like two-hour mushroom walks. We do private walks and consultations for people that want to either grow mushrooms on their farm or want to learn what mushrooms are growing on their land. And then we do three-day workshops, which once again is about mushroom walks and learning how to identify mushrooms and appreciate mushrooms, you know, know about the characteristics, the history of fungi, the medicinal purposes, the edibles, the poisonous, but also maybe even futuristic technologies that are coming out around fungi. We also focus on um, a little bit of microremediation and we talk about outdoor cultivation on logs, uh, stropharia beds, um, and really try to give people an introduction into the world of fungi, including medicinal mushroom extract making and things like that. The workshops are toned towards the people that a lot of people are coming up from New York City are interested in learning, you know, just from the start what it is. And some of these people, I mean, 
nature has been my greatest teacher throughout my life. And some of these people haven't really explored the woods at all. And so on some level, it's even just letting them know it's all right to be out there and letting them know that these are things you can connect with, that it's safe to pick mushrooms. It's safe to appreciate them and look at them and photograph them and, and what to do from there. So that becomes a lot of my role. However, as we're moving forward and creating this outdoor inoculation space and area, we're looking to delve deeper into some of these subjects and start to have a lot more intermediate expert level courses as well. Yeah, that's really great to hear that you're helping people build this connection with nature through fungi and mentioning that even people coming from one of these major metropolises like New York City. What do you think is the learning curve for someone, say, a New York urban city dweller who maybe got linked to a blog article about mushrooms on their social media and all of a sudden was like, this is cool and I'm going to go go up to Catskill Fungi and learn about this. How long does it take someone to become uh, truly appreciative and immersed in the fungi experience? Yeah, that's a great question, Leif. And what's really fun is that it's really great to get people into mushrooms because one of the things that we focus on is the wow factor, you know, largest living organism on the planet. The fact that over 60 species glow in the dark and phosphoresce. There's really so many wow factors of fungi, like some of the oldest multicellular life on earth. There's just the fact that in every square inch of soil, there's a mile of mycelium and that every millimeter, there's like thousands of spores. And so it's really easy to get people interested and involved in mushrooms. And there is so much to learn. I think that's one thing that people realize is that, you know, there's four times as many fungi as plants. And we only have scientific names for about 10% of them and, and really getting people wowed by fungi and then help them take the next step into learning further. I think that's one of our main purposes in Catskill Fungi. It's really that introductory lessons of it and the springboard to help them connect further. So, you know, they get an overview of mushrooms. They get an overview of life cycle and are starting to understand that they're a different kingdom and what they are. And, you know, I have a lot of people say that they'll never look at the forest the same way again, you know, that they really realize that everything is connected through it. And I think that's an important lesson. And I also try to give them the resources to make the next steps and connect them with mycological societies and mushroom clubs around and applied mycological uh, organizations like the mushroom shed that cropped up from uh, one of my students in New Pulse that's really starting her own community mushroom farm. And a lot of this comes from people taking that interest and delving deep into it. And I feel like that's a really great reason why your podcast exists, this Applied Mycology podcast, because we can get into deeper subjects. We can get into kind of a little bit more of the nitty gritty of it which I'm excited to do. Yeah. And I feel like there's a really a people are after they get their general introduction to uh, fungi or mycology, either from like a culinary experience or, you know, learning about some of the applied mycology or learning of the fact they're ubiquitous. Like it's a kind of, where do we go from here? Like what's the next step? So definitely there was my personal journey and I don't want to speak for Leaf as well, but 
but I think there's a bit of time where you kind of dive in and do this research and find people, but it's not a very straight path. You know, it's a bit, a bit more complex. So having something that's accessible in an aspect of content, but also community and also resources to people that are out there, because, you know, that's such a young field, given the fact people who study plants for the purpose of the biology, people who grow them, people that, you know, study how to scale them with mycology, kind of everyone's doing a bit, but all at the same time. So having that resource about understanding where you can go and where you could go, you know, just helps people kind of set that path earlier on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like you're one of the people amongst many who's helping really expand this out there. Because you mentioned, did you say it was six years ago when you started your business? Yeah, and it was, like I said, the need of the community. And as I've put out different types of classes and seen the feedback that I get from people, the most of people are still looking for just a basic introduction. Um, They say, you know, I'm interested. I want to get more involved. How do I get further along this path? And so that's, that's what I really try to do is just meet people where they are. And I try to speak to what the audience wants to hear. But at the same time, just personally, I am hungry to get deeper into things with people. I'm hungry to get further along in more advanced classes and things like that. And um, I'm hoping that as, as the future progresses, like when I posted those, they just, you know, I haven't gotten a lot of response so much from the community. But I think as things progress, you're going to start to see more and more of, you know, the masses really looking to level up in that way. Yeah, it's like people will reach plateaus with certain types of mm-hmm. technique and knowledge, and then you kind of got to go in deeper. And, mm-hmm. well, maybe right now we could go in a little deeper on the topic you mentioned that you're familiar with, which is these medicinal mushroom extracts. And I know it's a popular topic. I've made some myself. And, and this is something where I know when, when I first got into applied mycology, I started working at a mushroom farm about four years ago. And, you know, we, we were looking into this stuff. It was still relatively, I'll say, not common. And then I'd say, like, within the last few years, it just seems like the interest in medicinal mushrooms is exploding. You want to tell us some of the mushrooms you work with and maybe some interesting qualities about them and maybe going a little deeper than the, you know, or, or uh, we say quirky, idiosyncratic qualities of them you know, they just go beyond their fact that they help your immune system. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I work with a lot of the mushrooms that people have probably heard of, uh, reishi, lion's mane, chaga, maitake, turkey tail are some of the main ones dabbling in cordyceps and a few others on the side, uh, but haven't really released them commercially. But I think Probably the breadth of knowledge that I may have that other people can't really find in books is just from selling them at farmer's markets and seeing people again and again, week after week, and seeing kind of what feedback I get from making these extracts in my community. And it's really great because if you can make a potent extract, people really, people really see a lot of benefits from it. And, you know, with reishi, alone the main thing i get back from that is that people feel just more balanced 
they feel less ups and downs, more even keeled, both in energy levels and like even emotionally, which is really great to hear back. I've had a dozen people, and I always recommend people talk to their healthcare practitioner, read the studies, you know, I'm there to provide them extract, but I'm not there to convince anybody anything. You know, everybody makes their own choices. And these days in healthcare, you really have to do your own research. You're the pharmacist, not the doctor, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm somebody that I'm, I'm happy to help supply them and I'll give them the information they need. And I recommend that they look it up themselves and talk to their healthcare practitioners. But from a dozen people that have taken ratio over the past five years, you know, I've had people that were at risk of high blood pressure, those that either were on medications already or, you know, their doctor recommended they start taking them. And I've had them come back and they've had their blood pressure lowered. They either didn't have to go on medications after taking Reishi regularly. They got their medication lowered by the doctor, taking it together. And even in in extreme case, I do work with a pharmacist up in Tannersville called Wellness Rx. His name is um, Ed Ullman, and he's on the board at the Albany College of Pharmacy. But he had this case where this woman came in. I think she was there for a retreat, and she was, like, flown in from China, and she was there, and she came into his pharmacy feeling weird, and he took her blood pressure. It was extremely high. And he says, whoa, like, you need to go to the hospital. She's like, I'm not going to the hospital. She says, then you need to talk to your doctor and, and connect with him because she says he's in Switzerland. You know, you have to treat me. What are you going to do? And he gave her a reishi extract. And she, I think she quadrupled the dose, but he says, you have to come back tomorrow. You know, you're at really high risk. And she came back the next day and it had dropped, like, significantly to levels that were no longer alarming and he said you know you really have to watch this still but you know this significantly helped and so you know once again i just got to say you know if you're out there and you're interested in these mushroom extracts or making a commercial thing of this just know like every person's different you know what worked for that woman doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for everybody. And it's really great to have that view of it. You know, there's no silver bullets out there in life, you know, a healthy diet, sleep, exercise are really essential. Um, but these are things that can help. And so the other thing with ratio would be sleep. I've had a lot of women um, postmenopausal that it helps with those symptoms as well. But people that are usually in like their fifties and having difficulty sleeping, now, reishi doesn't make you tired, but if, you know, people that wake up in the middle of the night and they take reishi, they're generally able to go back to sleep. And once again, this is all anecdotal evidence from people at a farmer's markets over the past few years. And the ones that I'm telling you are from cases that I've heard a dozen or so times. So with chaga, people can be around sick people and don't get sick. That's what I hear a lot. They say that it kind of can give them a boost of energy, but it also, it's one of these things that they've been around really sick people or very stressful situations and they haven't gotten sick. They haven't gotten colds or flus. And I can attest to that too myself. Another thing with 
chaga, which doesn't really show up as much in the research, but does have history of the Conti people that, you know, originally named chaga is with skin and psoriasis and rosacea and different things like this, where, you know, I've had people that had skin issues that dermatologists couldn't even identify come back, you know, after trying things for years and say that chaga really helped them. And that's taking it internally. That's not necessarily making salves as the Conti people did. So yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Lion's mane and brain function and memory. That's pretty common, but also with nerves. I've had people that have had foot pain for years and had a hard time walking and they've taken lion's mane regularly. And this is, you know, people that in this one case where this woman only changed one thing in her diet and was an herbalist and was really strict about it. And she only changed one thing a month and tried lion's mane and said that, you know, her foot pain went away. So, you know, we think about lion's mane for the brain, but it also works with other nerves and neurological issues. I feel like that's a good start as far as, as those extracts go. And, and I'm happy to answer further questions that you have. It's really interesting because a lot of it now is that for a long time, much of our focus upon medicine definitely comes from the fact that these are all natural products, the results of these organisms making secondary metabolites. And mm-hmm. a lot of the procedure kind of of determining the efficacy of these natural products is usually kind of falls into the scope of like, you know, reductionism, like looking at, understanding, okay, what is the mechanism of action, especially with a lot of allopathic procedures in Western medicine. Where fungi, they've only recently been kind of focused on and studied. And part of it too is that some of the biggest effects that we see of a certain type of immune response, whether it's a shift from pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory, I think one of the most common ones is talking about these T lymphocyte responses, like Th1 versus Th2 response. Th1 is usually a pro-inflammatory immune response, and Th2 is kind of an anti-inflammatory immune response. Mm-hmm. And how the the one of the big factors of why fungi are so prolific is that it's helping to have this immunomodulatory effect because it's resembling a number of these, you know, the structures that are are in fungi, most of the medicinal fungi in general they're surviving in their environment against a whole range of pathogens, parasites, competitors even. And that, you know, we have this kind of genetic memory built into us as, as animals, mammals. The reason why we're warm-blooded was to have a temperature that's too high that most fungal pathogens can't survive. So it's really interesting because a lot of the nature's the complexity of what's mediating these effects is kind of hard to pin down on kind of a singular reductionist capacity. You know, mm-hmm. most of the procedures where we study things are focused around isolating a single molecule and studying it because it's a process by which you patent to produce it. Whereas in East Asia, a lot of the procedure, they're pretty content with understanding there's a whole kind of complex of compounds working together. So that's kind of the interesting effect. And a lot of it is that there are a number of pretty wide review papers looking at a lot of the studies. There are some critiques and concerns about who's providing the studies and how things work, but looking at understanding, okay, like, looking at the procedure and understanding what the sample size was in the methodology, there is a pretty good amount of that coming to form in these large review studies to kind of put some information about it. So it's kind of exciting to see this transition where recognizing fungi as a place to provide people with options because they are natural products. And even further, I think I think one of the best examples is talking about Taxol, which is a very potent anti-cancer drug, which came from the yew tree 
and people thought, oh, it's it's coming from the bark of this tree. Well, it turns out that it's they thought, oh, it's actually really coming from from the fungus, which is actually growing in symbiosis with the actual yew tree. But then even further, they're realizing it's actually a symbiosis between the plant and the fungus, that this co-secondary metabolite. So we're only beginning to understand maybe this really reduced reductionist system by which we look at things, which is important to discover knowledge. It's kind of limiting us in the scope of what's actually going on in these larger dynamic interactions. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that comes out in food a lot too. And as you were mentioning with extracellular metabolites and those that are grown outdoors. And we've been seeing this with plants and like coffees and things that are in stressed environments generally have, you know, more flavor and are more robust. And it's similar to fungi as well, which is why, yeah, moving more towards outdoor grown where, you know, the background that they're growing in is complex. There's all sorts of different complexities that they have to build up immunity around and, yeah, those extracellular metabolites that they are making, you know, being more closely related to fungi than we are to plants. I mean, they're going to be able to link up within our bodies as well, but it also comes out in flavor. Eugenia Bone was just talking about this at a talk she was giving. It was cooking for mycologists uh, for the New York Botanical Gardens and how, yeah, the more complex the environment they're grown in, you know, the more robust and then also, you know, is exemplified within density as well. A great example of that is eating a shiitake mushroom grown off a log versus those ones you buy at the grocery store that are all kind of skinny and small that were grown off a sawdust block. I mean, if you put those two beside anyone, then it's pretty obvious which one is the superior food product. So true. They almost look like different mushrooms. I mean, the deepness, the darkness that you get from an outdoor log grown shiitake. I know people have compared it like an outdoor grown shiitake, like a summer tomato versus a winter tomato. It's like an indoor grown shiitake. But yeah, it's, it's amazing the complexity of what's out there. Another thing Eugenia was talking about was vanilla just similar to what Craig was saying about taxol from the yew tree. I guess the flavor within vanilla is not even just necessarily the plant, but it's an endophytic fungi inside the plant that creates that. Yeah, that's interesting because that really speaks to the importance of cultivating these foods in a biologically and uh, nutrient-rich environment because if it's an endophyte that's creating the exquisite vanilla flavor than if it's vanilla being grown in a, you know, soil or setting devoid of microbial activity, maybe it doesn't have that endophyte in enough of an abundance to get that top-notch flavor. And then to start thinking about how many, uh, you know, specialty plant cultivars probably have some effect like this. It's uh, quite a lot to, to think about. Yeah. Especially, you know, something to think about before you start spraying antifungals, that's for sure. Um, yes, indeed. So on this topic of biology in the soil and in the plants and the fungal roles, maybe we could uh, shift gears a little and, and talk about a topic I know that you're really passionate about. I know Craig is extremely into, and that is this whole thing of natural farming and leveraging native or indigenous soil microorganisms. Oh, fascinating. I love this topic. I mean, this is something that I'm really hoping to 
expand upon our outdoor education space as that grows up in the spring and summer. Yeah, I mean, I was just recently introduced to it. And this is after like working on organic farms, biodynamic farms for like a decade and being around farm culture for a really long time. I was, my mind was blown when I learned about uh, natural farming or um, as it was introduced to me, like Korean natural farming, but it really depends on where you are because it's all about harnessing indigenous microorganisms and introducing those into your soil and growing them up using super low tech methods. And it's just fascinating learning about what's in the soil. I'm sure Craig could speak like much more miles on this, but just like in every teaspoon of soil, there being, you know, 10 to the 13th amount of microorganisms. And just to put that into perspective, there's like 10 to the 11th stars in our galaxy. So it's just incredible the amount of life that's going on under our feet. And, you know, fungi, as Eugenia says, fungi are the gateway science into microbiology. And it's true. The more I learn about what's going on in the soil and the interconnection of fungi and the glomalin they make, which houses archaea and bacteria and, and different microorganisms that help feed the soil and what we can do as cultivars to grow healthy soil is just fascinating. I know we've been talking about natural farming a little bit, but you can just think of it as making your own additives to your soil and and really urging soil along in a way that just by introducing certain beneficial fungi and certain beneficial things that you can grow from what's in the woods around you, you can help improve uh, the soil quality and help urge it along very quickly and help build soil, which I think is a really essential topic for today. Yeah, building soil, it perhaps is the most important topic for the fate of humanity in some ways, as the degradation of soil is what's caused every great empire to collapse in some way or another. Um, You said that the techniques are somewhat low-tech and accessible. Could you just briefly outline how someone would go about starting natural farming? Sure. I I took a two-day course, and it really blew my mind about some of these techniques. But even you can probably look them up online. I'm sure Craig and and Leif, you all can probably post some resources where people can um, look up maybe like Chris Trump's videos or some other things, Elaine Ingham. I mean, just the other day, I'm standing there in in a health food store, and my friend's saying, you know, I've got all these eggs around, and yet I'm buying calcium carbonate supplements. And I said, you know, there's a Korean natural farming technique where you can peel out the inside of the eggshells, and then you grind them up, and you kind of heat them in a cast iron skillet until they're brown, and then you introduce them to apple cider vinegar and put cheesecloth over it. And there's a chemical reaction that occurs, and they start to bubble and they're actually extracting that calcium carbonate from there. And then from there, you can strain out the eggshells and then you can take a little dropper full of calcium carbonate. It's literally, you just need like a dropper full. And the amount of calcium carbonate you can make is just astounding. And not only is this stuff good for yourself, but it's healthy for your soil. And so this calcium carbonate is something that you can add 
to what's called an IMO or indigenous microorganisms. And the way you grow that is by making bad rice. And you put maybe a cup of rice to a cup of water and you make really hard rice and you put it in a basket outside, kind of on the edge of a forest. And you kind of dig around the leaves and you put it straight down on the soil in maybe like a, uh, a wicker basket that's covered over and you cover that over with wire mesh so it doesn't get messed with by animals. And you come back in like a week and you feel the bottom and it'll feel warm. And when you open it up, you should see all this fuzzy white stuff on the rice, which I think we all know is mycelium. And then from there, you're introducing this rice to a variety of sugars, and then you put it in a bucket of water. That's when you can add your calcium carbonate and other additives, like you can make something out of mugwort that's good for iron, you mix it with sugar, mugwort and sugar, you mash it up, mash it up, and it'll extract some of that iron from there that can go in there depending on what kind of soil you're looking to grow. And then from that five gallon bucket with that IMO one in there, you can dump it on a big 50 pound bag of bran or ground up grain and mix it in. And that starts to get warm and hot and you keep that turning because you don't want it to heat up. Like in the case of compost, you want your compost to heat up really hot. So it kills all these different organisms. In this case, you actually want to keep those organisms alive. So you're mixing it up so that they stay alive. So every day or two, you're turning it over. About like a week later, you add another 50 pounds of soil from your garden. You mix that in. And that's how you create IMO4. And IMO4 is indigenous microorganisms for, and, and there's so much that you can do with that. And you can even just sprinkling like like a quarter inch to a half inch over your garden beds is introducing so much rich microbial and fungal life that it's the results are profound, truly profound. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting because just trying to explain to someone, it's, you try to <laughs> pack all that into a cursory explanation. Most people are yeah. fascinated and wild. But the way I've, I've described it is that it's understanding that often in areas where we live in human impacted areas, we've, through our development activity, we've created this kind of ecological disturbance. So the reality is oftentimes, you know, as we've begun to start studying soil and soil biology, that's kind of skewed it, where we only really see populations of microbes living in a disturbed or graded system or in a system that's early on in its ecological succession. So it's kind of almost like a way how we can really speed up the successional clock by going to these areas of ecological biodiversity using a type of rice, which is a high protein to fat ratio to a carbohydrate, which is a really good fungal food. Fungi are known to not only break down complex organic materials, but also they can break down fats and proteins as well. And also understanding that in healthy soil, these are more fungally dominant soils, but dominant in the sense that only fungi are living there, but the more so the fungi are the architects. They're creating all this higher end structure that other microorganisms can live on. Where most people talk about bacteria in a negative light, like, no, you need beneficial good bacteria that are there. Just the environments that we're engaging in with a lot of urban areas or disturbed soils are the ones that happen to be pathogenic. So it's a way you can kind of like take a snapshot from this ecological area, stabilize them, and then basically adapt them to your area. And 
I think one of the best explanations was that when you get it up to the collection of indigenous microorganisms up to level four, when you're adapting it to your soil, you've really acclimated to where it's like this steamroller of microbial activity. IMO5 is an expert taking your IMO4 Mm -hmm. and adding it to a high nitrogen source where people have taken animal carcasses, Mm -hmm. you know, and they've degraded in about two weeks, even the bone. Yeah. Full carcass. Full carcass, bone included, which is kind of wild. And there was even a joke at the class. Someone made, do they make an IMO5 for Uh, (laughs) mothers-in-laws (laughs) or in-laws? Which, but yeah, it's, uh, maybe that's the newest episode of the show Hannibal or something like that. I don't know. But getting back to the point, it's that it's a way you can really kind of speed up the ecological clock because if you're using materials from your environment to compost, the microbes that are breaking those down are whatever's around based upon the ecological history of your environment. Kind of the aspect too is we often talk about preserving our natural biodiversity for biosecurity and safety. And that's kind of seen as like a bioprospecting reverse engineering aspect, which is a lot of work when in reality it's something so simple as using these old, old, old fermentation techniques to culture the microbes and then harvesting the effects of, of their base metabolism to grow out plants and animals and fi which are going to be exhibiting that higher secondary metabolism behavior because they're they're nurtured by the complexity and the richness of the of the environment yeah using what's there that we can't see like all our fermentation techniques i've even heard an example of someone i was talking to some people about growing out mycelium of a cultivated gourmet mushroom like which are most of white rot fungi white rot being that they're breaking down a lot of the complex structures in wood the lignans that they referred to it as a solid state fermentation. And it was so funny when they mentioned that it, it was like, I had to stop for a second. And then I realized most of the mycology education is very much from the DIY movement. Uh, it was underground in that capacity and self-taught. So the idea of like running my sleep on grain, it's like, yeah, I guess that is solid state fermentation. Cause usually in most microbiology, when they're cultivating yeasts or filamentous fungi, they're growing it in like a liquid media, like a liquid culture broth in these giant bioreactors for like industrial fermentation. So it's kind of interesting because at the end of the day, we're with all this high tech stuff and biotech, we're still using fermentation at the end of the day. It's like what scale degree and techniques, right? Sometimes even the seeming most simple techniques can get you the most complex and abundant results, which is kind of beautiful about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that, that I found with uh, natural farming too, because my teacher that was teaching me, he had no background in microbiology whatsoever. He was a farmer and it was really accessible because all he was talking about is techniques. And we were asking questions like, wow, what kind of bacteria is there? Like what ratio of bacteria are we getting? And like how many? And he's like, look, we're doing this because it works. And so even if you don't have a background in biology or microbiology or understanding how these interactions work, the techniques that you're doing to make additives that are not just healthy for you and for the soil, they're very easy. They're very simple and there are things that you can utilize just what's in your kitchen already to make it. It's quite fascinating. If you're interested in getting into that, don't be intimidated if you don't have a background in microbiology. That's the beauty of techniques like natural farming and even a lot of mushroom cultivation, even, um, you know, and even what I would sometimes call uh, mycoscaping, but basically, uh, you know, incorporating fungi into 
gardening, landscaping, things like that. You can take spent substrate, you can make inoculums, and you can do all this without having a deep understanding of biology or microbiology as long as you learn the techniques and you know, learn how to observe what's in front of you and, you know, the cues, the the smells, the sights and all that, which is what makes a lot of this really empowering. And I think what drives a lot of the interest in uh, mycology in this realm is that it's like these empowering tools for working with the soil and working with the land that are harnessing really complex scientific concepts, but you don't really need to know all those to get the benefit out of them. Yeah, mushrooms are going to save the world whether we know how they're doing it or not. Yeah, well, I would say it's the, it's probably more the mycelium that will be doing the saving than mm-hmm. the mushrooms. Maybe the mushrooms for so the true. for the you know the health and what in the you know all that, but but let's be nitpicky about it here and <laughs> use the right yeah. terminology. It's it's interesting yeah, to think it's about the whole fungi really. Yeah, it's, it's the it's, fungi. It's interesting to think about how like when you're, you know, usually kind of starting out, even kind of when I was learning about fungi because a lot of my interest was like kind of soil health and bioremediation and kind of learning how fungi are ubiquitous in the soil. Yeah, a lot of these soil fungi are doing most of the remediation. I had an interview with a guest, her name was Lauren, who had studied the fungi populations in these super fun sites. So like these creosote soaked soils. And the reality is they were looking at all these potential enzyme pathways, which are mostly the lignin modifying enzymes because they were so hot, but it wasn't up until they could start doing upward kind of full genomic techniques. Like, so looking at not only who's home for the genomes, but also what genes they're expressing at certain times, like snapshots, that they had this panel of pathways they assumed were working, but the majority of the degradation was happening outside the scope that we had thought. So it's kind of amazing that they're there. And so it's kind of funny when I used to, when I was talking about fungi and educating people, I wouldn't use the term like the mycelium. I would like, like, oh, the mycelium of the species. But when you kind of get into the soil, when you reach like this peak complexity of an ecosystem where fungi are allowed to propagate and grow, it's kind of this patchwork mesh of all these different species of fungi, all these different species of yeast, all these different species of bacteria kind of becoming this composite organism, which is something that even Leaf and I, we were going back and forth over a paper that kind of talks about how it's kind of futile to not talk about fungi as a composite organism. You know, how they have their own microbiomes and even too, a number of these bacteria can actually lead to their propagation of growth. So it's kind of amazing that like when we talk about fungi, we have to talk about the fact that they're the architects or the literal builders of the structure of this higher level soil health. And the more I kind of go down the rabbit hole on soil between mycology, natural farming, a lot of the soil food web, you're realizing, oh, wait, this is much like we're talking about ourselves as like an organism. We like, we talk about our humans, ourselves as a single entity, but we're like trillions of cells that each cell has the same genome. There are around a hundred to 200 different cell types that are expressing different parts of the genome selectively, but those cells are forming organs that form organ systems for composite macroorganism. But then at the same time, we have our own microbiome. We have the second organ system. So it's kind of amazing to go down the rabbit hole. Like, I mean, the more I study and talk about soil, you have to think about it as a composite superorganism. And that when you have a depleted soil, you have a reduction of that biology. You'll just have the parent material, which is kind of like the substrate. It's, it's like the bones or the teeth. It's like the biomineralized skeleton that this biology, the organic matter that the biology generates, lives on and associates with. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it. And it's so true. Absolutely. And and all of these things are happening all at once. It is like a super organism of vast complexity. 
And each one of those individuals that's growing and thriving is happening on their own uh, life cycle and life scale. You know? And so you have just multiple life cycles in different forms and in different timelines on top of each other. It's a fascinating, fascinating field. And with uh, natural farming, it's really awesome to help it along and help see it grow quickly. You know, in some ways, this discussion of uh, natural farming, the diversity of these soil systems, it almost feels like a technique like natural farming where we're just we're uh, gathering and propagating this wide uh, diversity of the native organisms. It's like a diversity and inclusion initiative for the soil ecosystem. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of which, uh, let's let's uh, let's talk about your political career, John. You used to be the president, right? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, I was the president. My term was three years, and life was good. <laughs> uh, yeah, the constituents were happy. We um, grew constituents as we went. Um, and of course, we're talking about a mycological club or mushroom club, of course. Um, but yeah, I was president of the Mid-Hudson Mycological Association. I took it over from Lisa Resnick, who walked right up to me and asked me, you know, well, she didn't even ask me. She said, we think you'd make a good president. And I didn't have really any experience with that. And I said, you know, okay, well, what, what do I have to do? And she said, you'll be fine. I was like, all right, what's the time commitment? She said, you'll be fine. <laughs> and um, I think because I didn't say no, uh, that meant yes. And so not knowing anything about it, there's a little bit of a learning curve. And of course, our soil communities, we exist with each other. And it was because of a lot of the people that have been members and held offices in that club that I was able to really gain a lot of knowledge and my main focus for that, because the club was kind of in critical condition, it was like June and they didn't have a walk list, but my main focus once it was off life support was to really try to create the most amount of diversity of topics and interests and attract, you know, just all different types of people. Cause yeah, the more diverse our soils are, the healthier plants that grow from them and the healthy organism they are themselves. And I kind of feel that way, the same thing with like all organizations. So what I did was I hosted like a monthly mushroom speaker series, which happened every first Tuesday of the month, it still happens every first Tuesday of the month. And we host a different speaker talking about a different topic around mycology. And I really just tried to invite absolutely everybody to give a talk, you know, be it on Paul Stowski came up from the New York Mycological Society and talked about polypores, but we also had, you know, Craig come up and give a whole demo on DNA extraction. That was a fun one. And, oh, that was so fun. And we've had everything from cultivars on there to microremediators to Sue uh, Hopkins coming down and, and giving a talk on mushroom dyeing, like dyes like dye mushrooms d-y-e and really we just try to expand our knowledge we have a chef come and talk about koji really we're just trying to welcome in as all the different types of mycology within that talk and through that we've really grown membership and more interest and i'm really happy to say that i was able to pass the torch of <laughs> of president 
And we have a wonderful person, Christine Moss, that's doing a fantastic job and has started a newsletter. And the club is still going with their monthly mushroom speaker series. But, you know, all these mushroom clubs out there, and if you're not a member of a mushroom club in your area, you can find them on the North America Mycological Association website, namico.org, and go under clubs, and it's broken down by state. And I really recommend getting in there. And if you've gone and you don't like the club, take an officer position and change it. It's really one of these things that it's a way that it's a platform that you can utilize to bring mushroom people together and help to extend knowledge in your community. So presently, I am part of the education committee. And so we help to put the mushroom walk list together for the year, as well as the monthly mushroom speaker series. Yeah, I, I always urge people to get involved with these types of communities. And I know that clubs are very different no matter where you are across the country. They exist in many different forms and shapes and sizes and focuses. Generally, the focus is around taxonomical interest, but I see that shifting as well in certain clubs. And I just want to let people know that they really do have the power to change these things because most of the clubs are really just waiting for somebody to help out. And by offering your help, you really have a little bit of sway to really grow a club in the direction that you might want to see. So how long did it take you to uh, release the uh, intelligence briefings to the new president when she took over? (laughs) (laughs) five minutes five minutes yeah Yeah, basically yeah two minute email like see google doc let me let me let me breathe this cup of coffee and i'll get it over to you (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's so funny there's so much that happens on the back end of clubs that members don't see that it's pretty complex I mean, it's not that complex, quite honestly. The most complex thing is having to go through the roles of talking to the board and saying, is everybody on board with this thing that I'm proposing? And and that was really tough for me to adjust to having my own company that, you know, it's really easy for me to just make a quick decision. But when you have to stop and ask like four other people and wait for them to email you back, it slows things down a little bit, but it's also important, you know? important for member representation. Well, I'm glad to hear that what you're just saying, member representation is important. It's easy for people to have their voice heard in these organizations and get involved. And there shouldn't be a sense of intimidation that you're going to show up and everyone else is going to be an expert and they're going to tell you to be quiet. And that's not really how these organizations function. It's uh, it's much more welcoming and accommodating than that. Yeah, I'd like to think that that's the case all over the country, but I'm sure it may differ from club to club. I'm sure it does. Yeah, thanks for sobering me up there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just the reality of it at times. But I think that we are seeing change, and persistence generally wins over. Yeah, stick with it. Speaking of change, you had mentioned that you're going to be allowing for new types of mycological community engagement. Yes, that's what our main hope is. One, to answer the call of the community that want to stop by the farm and learn something, 
And so we're going to have open hours for people to come and enjoy the space and learn about inoculation. And we're also going to have a little tour through the woods to talk about ecological functions, you know, history of fungi, uh, the kingdom fungi, and, and really some of the basics. We're also going to have a space for interns to come and help out and work. And once it really gets rolling, and I think it's probably going to take a season, I really want to be able to have it as an educational space that people can utilize and open it up to people that have projects and help them along with creating those projects either in that space or outside of it. And that's, that's another one of my main passions is really helping people get started with mushroom businesses or get started with mushroom projects. Like I'm happy to be somebody that can people to other people, but also I'm happy to break down the nitty gritty for some reason, you know, I'm one of these weird people that really likes all that like logistical stuff. And I'm happy to talk people through it and ask them the right questions so that they can understand something that has a solid foundation. Uh, because that's what I did before I started Catskill Fungi. I took a permaculture design course and really, you know, if you're not familiar with permaculture, you know, one definition would be meeting human needs while improving the environment. And so that became the foundation of Catskill Fungi and that became kind of the, the why we were doing it. And so it helps you answer some of these tough questions when you come across forks in the road with your company, but I'm happy to help people flush that out for the projects they want to start and get into and hopefully help them uh, create something that supports themselves, their community and the planet. On that note, do you have any general recommendations on logistics or just in general for people who are thinking of starting a mushroom business or who already have that would, you know, help people maybe avoid some of the learning uh, or growing pains that you experienced yourself? Yeah, where to start? There's really a lot out there. Um, take your time. I spent a lot of time before I made the jump into doing this full-time, uh, exploring and crunching the numbers. And it's boring and it's not sexy, but if you really can understand what the community need is and what you can offer, that's really a good place to start. And then once you can see the need that your community has and how to address it, then you kind of have to crunch the numbers and say, okay, of course you want to do that. Of course you always want to help your community, but am I going to be able to sustain myself, the lifestyle I choose, you know, through this project and, you know, hopefully keep digging until the answer is yes. And then once you find that, that might be the one you want to pursue. Also, there's a lot of free resources out there. There's all sorts of different small business initiatives in towns across the country, and you can have a free business advisor help you out. I always recommend people learn from people smarter than them. I mean, that's how we do it, right? I mean, we learn from people that you know have done this before. And it's a really great way to save time. And so, yeah, tap into some of these free resources to help out and keep your passion alive no matter what. I mean, just know that like as a full-time mushroom person, I spend a good amount of time doing things that don't look like mushroom things. And it's because it's what it takes to keep it alive. And 
yeah, just be prepared to work really hard. And, you know, every day I wake up, it's all I want to do, you know, because I just, I love it. But also just understand that there's a lot of different components to it. Yeah, I just gave a talk last night to the New York Mycological Society on how to quit your job and devote your life to mushrooms, uh, which was Gary Linkoff's famous quote. And uh, it really highlights different people that have done this and what advice they have for others that want to quit their jobs and devote their life to mushrooms. And I think also just understand that like some of this advice is like, it's risky, but you know, you can mitigate that risk by, you know, working your full-time job and doing your mushroom job on the side and slowly growing that mushroom job until you can transition over to it. Yeah. And, and I'm, like I said, I make myself available. I'm happy to talk to people that want to do this. I've helped other people start medicinal extract companies locally where I feel like really essential in this mushroom movement is working locally. I see that as the highest potential for extracts, but also the highest potential for even remediation programs. You know, you have to work locally at some point, you know, look at our soils. When we're looking at our soils with natural farming, we're looking at our indigenous microorganisms. We're looking at utilizing what's there. And so that's where I always encourage people to really look into your community, look at the need and see how uh, fungi can really help to solve that. Because there's so many different ways in which we can utilize fungi to solve our real world problems. And sometimes it's just better to start, you know, in your backyard with your own community. Awesome. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I think part of it too is that one trend I've noticed with people starting to get into fungi, whether it's an aspect of a company or a practice or teaching or just something, there's a big aspect of kind of a community dynamic where I do notice Mm -hmm. that a lot of people do kind of embody the principle of fungi kind of being this connector of resources, material, knowledge, but also facilitating this not only decentralized, but distributed kind of node network. So I I feel like people, you take a philosophical approach to how these organisms do function and work to a larger goal, allowing this kind of facilitation of community uh, and collaboration, which, you know, I think it kind of overturns a lot of the concept that a lot of people tend to perceive that the world is competitive or combative, when in reality, it's it's far more interdependent and communal in that capacity. Yeah, really well said, Craig. And it's a great mindset to have. In, and it's one that I choose as well when dealing with different things throughout the company is, is understanding, you know, even in that analogy of soil, that there are so many different things working in that soil. And there are so many different ways in which they're working. And they're all part of that greater you know, mega organism as we are and as your company with other within your community as well. That's a great point to bring up here as we get near the end that the fungi do so much things in the environment. They have so many important functions, but they also almost form as a good metaphor or a template of potentially modeling human activities around because of the interconnectedness, the node network the uh, decentralized communicative abilities and all that. And you had mentioned earlier, John, about how sometimes 
the work you do or your activities end up butting into kind of a futuristic mycotechnology type of facets. And are there any things along these lines, any mycotechnologies emerging in the future that you're excited about that you would like to mention to our audience before we end this conversation? Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. Well, as far as like my main focus in education, the technologies I see around with education are actually just like curriculums. I feel like we're going to start to see a lot more fungi interveloped within K through 12 curriculums and in colleges and things like that. I feel like with uh, the Fungi Foundation going international and now having a full board um, in the United States, which by the way, check out Fungi Foundation. If you got any extra cash, definitely throw it to them because they're going to be revolutionizing things in the United States. I feel like Juliana, I'm hoping that she's going to take the same path that she took in Chile by appealing to the highest legislature that funga should be considered within any environmental assessment impact. So if people want to do any construction, not only do they have to understand the implications to native flora and fauna, they have to understand the effect on funga. And in just that one fell swoop, which took her about 10 years of lobbying, it created jobs for mycologists throughout all of South America. And it's one of these things that not only did it create jobs for people to understand which fungi are red listed, but it also helps put pressure on universities to graduate mycologists, which puts pressures on K through 12 schools to have it within their curriculum. So as she's working with the International Mycological Society to create that curriculum, I'm hoping that it'll be easily translated into English and can be uh, uploaded to NGSS standards. And so I feel like that's going to be one really main place in which you're going to see fungi education. And the other place is with psilocybin. If you are looking into a mushroom business right now, I feel like it's cutting edge. I feel like it's like going to be the next wave. You're going to have different cities, which are already not just decriminalizing, but making it legal for medicinal use. And I feel like that's going to be a major future. And I don't know who's going to be certifying coaches to help people take these journeys with psilocybin mushrooms. But, you know, with Johns Hopkins sinking $17 million into a brand new facility for psychedelic research, I feel like there's certainly a lot of community interest. I certainly know that there's a lot of people looking into that. And so, you know, I don't really know what direction that's going to take, but um, I have a lot of hope that the more that's out there, the I feel like it's going to help humanity connect with themselves and the planet in a deeper way, in a way that's um, a little bit more holistic. So, yeah, I mean, as far as as far as that goes, that's kind of what I'm thinking as far as futuristic endeavors. I'm not sure my role in that, but I'm very excited to see where that progresses. Yeah, well, whatever your role is, it sounds like there's a lot of fascinating stuff on the horizon. Definitely. And we know you're a busy guy, John, and we don't want to keep you from getting to your uh, next obligations. So we should wrap this up. But before you go, you want to just tell our audience how they can look up your work, your business, and follow what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, and thank you so much again for having me on the show. I mean, 
there's so much on the horizon with mycology, without a doubt. But you can get in touch with me through my email, john at catskillfungi.com. You can check out my website, catskillfungi.com. And yeah, we're, we're working on our 2021 events, which I'm sure some of them will be on Zoom. And I don't know, maybe we'll be able to get outside come the springtime. Yeah, check out catskillfungi.com and feel free to reach out to me. If any of this interests you, if you want to open up these conversations, I'm happy to talk with you. Excellent, John. And thanks again for being on here, definitely being part of what we're trying to do to kind of take fungi from being a curiosity to realizing their true ubiquity. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to listen to more of your podcasts and uh, I appreciate that you're delving deeper into some of these subjects. Yeah. Well, thanks for helping us do it. And please come back sometime because I'm sure there's lots more we could talk about. Yeah, I would love to. This is great. Guys, you're doing awesome stuff here. I'm really excited to uh, be a part of it. And thanks so much for having me on. We want to thank John for coming and sharing his time and perspective with us. And if you're interested in his work and want to keep up with what he's doing, go to catskillfungi.com or follow Catskill Fungi on social media. And if you enjoyed our conversation with John, be sure to subscribe to Applied Mycology and follow us on social media at Applied Mycology. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in again soon. Take care.